I decided that I was going to invest in my ability to make a better difference, yeah. a more profound difference. And that's what I did. I just focused. In today's very special show, I sit down with the incredible Dr. Margaret Martin, founder of The Harmony Project, a nonprofit organization that provides multi-year mentoring through music to at-risk youth in the high crime gang reduction zones of Los Angeles. You guys, this is one of the most special interviews I did this season, and I cannot wait for you to hear about this incredible woman and the work that she's doing within her local community. For people who are not familiar with you already, will you tell us, um, will you tell us your bio? Tell us about your life and your career. Okay, so um, my name is Margaret Martin. I'm a doctor of public health. Woohoo! <laughs> um, my first child was born when I was 17. Um, I'm a survivor of all sorts of things that Many women have survived. I'm a survivor of domestic violence, um, uh, child sexual assault. And I was, I found myself at, in my 20s, homeless with two children. Wow. An infant and a, uh, and a nine-year-old. So I was homeless for a year uh, with two kids. We slept in an office that I had. I had a... a I guess I'm a serial nonprofit maker. Mm. Uh, I had a uh, pregnancy and natural childbirth education center in the Los Feliz section of Hollywood, and we lived in my office for a year until um, I could find a way to move on. Um, I ended up remarrying and going back to school when I was 33. I was a 33-year-old freshman at Los Angeles City College. Wow. Ten years later, I'd earned a bachelor's, a master's, and a doctorate in public health. The work that I'm doing now was inspired when I saw a posse of gnarly-looking gang members standing, uh, walking through a farmer's market in Hollywood. They stopped in front of a small child playing Brahms on a tiny violin. After five or six minutes, without saying a word to one another, I watched those gang members pull out their own money and lay it gently in the child's case. Mm. I was completing a doctorate at the time in public health focused on what it takes to make a healthy community, and those gang members were teaching me that they would rather be doing what that child was doing mm. than what they were doing. Thing is, that child was my youngest son. Wow my five-and-a-half-year-old son, who was born uh, between the master's and the doctoral program at UCLA, literally an hour and 20 minutes after I completed a presentation on qualitative research methods. No! But here's the thing. We were spending more money on that child's music lessons than I had lived on with two kids mm. not that many years before. I was lo <laughs> also looking at that event through the lens of a, an academic we had a, a saying in the 60s, what if they gave a war and nobody came? Well, there are often social service interventions that people develop and nobody shows up. Nobody wants to do it. Like, why would I want to do that? Yeah. I mean, people have to be incentivized to do something. But this was, I was looking at an authentic moment of grace. I knew that I had to try. I understood everything that went into providing the opportunity for my little boy to learn to make music well. 
And I knew that those gang members and anyone associated with them, and yes, they were gang members, shaved heads, covered with tats, uniform, oversized clothing, and whole attitude, walking together as a pod. I knew that those young men and anyone associated with them were never going to have the opportunity that my son had to learn to make music. Mm -hmm. And I also knew as completely as I'd ever known anything that that was wrong. And I, and I wanted to try. I had to try. It was, I had to, I had to see if I could make a difference. If, if it hadn't worked, I would clearly uh, be doing something else. But after I completed my doctorate, I launched Harmony Project in 2001 with a small band of intrepid, naive founding board members <laughs> and uh, one $9,000 check from Rotary Club of wow. Hollywood. Go Rotary, <laughs> um, that was gone in about a minute, and 36 kids from low-income families, mostly second graders. Eight years later, I was at the White House receiving the highest honor in the nation for an arts-based youth program and from Michelle Obama. And two years after that, I was invited back to the White House to receive the Presidential Citizens Medal from her husband, mm -hmm. which was a completely surreal experience. Um, in 2015, um, the U.S. Department of Education, in, a, in collaboration with the White House, designated Harmony Project a bright spot in Hispanic education. And today, that brave little nonprofit, Harmony Project, has more than 2,000 students throughout L.A.'s highest crime designated gang zones, uh, spending 5 to 12 hours a week practicing making music with each other instead of getting into trouble. And we have affiliated programs in seven states, wow. uh, serving another 3,000 kids and counting. Additional programs are launching throughout the country, and we're in the process of, of spinning off a separate nonprofit, which will be my third, um, called uh, Harmony Project of, Amer of America, charged with bringing the model to national scale. That's my bio. <laughs> No, no pressure. Nothing. Yeah, no, just mic drop. I think the I think the interview's done. <clears throat> um, oh my gosh, I, it's hard to even know where to begin. I will go back to the beginning. I am um, I am always so inspired by someone who has fought their way out of a difficult beginning or a difficult middle. Or um, I, I think so often people run into hardship and just let it shut them down. And I think some of the most interesting valuable, incredible people I have known are people who have found a way to um, not stay down. Uh, when you were in that place, when you were, uh, I can't fathom being homeless with two little kids, what do you think it was? What do you think that you sort of um, pulled from to pull you up out of that place? Was it being a mom and having to fight for their future or was it something else? That was part of it. Um, I was profoundly uh, aware that any future for my children was my responsibility. And I was uh, not receiving child support. I've always taken walks to take care of my own mood and perspective. Mm -hmm. If you feel terrible, take a walk. Yes. And look at things around you. And also look at things some distance from you. I would walk up to the top of Mount Hollywood with my infant um, daughter strapped on my chest or back 
And there's something about physical perspective that would always give me emotional perspective. You know, my where I was living was down there, and look how small it looks. Yeah. And all the problems are got to be small down there. Give give yourself some bigger perspective. But I, I got the notion of uh, borrowing money and in, and buying um, fixer upper uh, real estate, mm-hmm. and, and I started doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, I got into a big old fixer-upper in the Hollywood Hills, and I fixed up, um, it, it, it had been turned into a duplex in 1945, and I fixed up um, the other unit and at a guest apartment, and I rented them out and found myself suddenly with the, with the, the mortgage payments covered. Wow. And I had some time. I spent a couple of weeks writing, um, and what I was writing about that really... I was really focusing on the difference between surviving and living. Mm-hmm. I had waited tables. I had continued to teach uh, childbirth classes. I, and I waited tables lunches because I, I, I needed to be home, mm-hmm. f- it, it, you know, with my kids. Yeah. Uh, so I, I found my, my working choices were somewhat constrained uh, thereby. But um, the difference between surviving and being alive was terribly important to me. I wasn't satisfied with surviving. Mm -hmm. When I was waiting tables and then working out after waiting tables and picking up my kids, I could have continued in in that trough. But it didn't take me anywhere. I would have only been surviving. So I needed to find out what it was that I cared deeply about, and I needed to, to find a way to get there. Mm-hmm. And I was undereducated, and I was painfully aware of that. So I started reading. The house that I purchased had, um, I, bu- I bought it in probate court, so somebody had died, and it was full of a bunch of stuff. And, and there were some old literature books from the 1920s, and I, and I just I sunk into them like I was hungry, um, so I, I remarried. I was covering the house. I was covering the rent. So I said, okay, I got this. I got the, uh, the house and the, um, and the taxes, uh, property taxes and, and, and insurance. You cover the food and stuff. I'm going back to school. Yeah. And I didn't look back. I felt very age inappropriate um, <laughs> at, at the age of 33. Matter of fact, my oldest son attended L.A. City College with me. Oh, wow. And how did he feel about that? Oh, he thought, he, he, he was 15. He thought it was great. Oh, okay, okay. You know, but he'd give me a hug, but he was also, he got to be six foot three. He'd give me a hug, and uh, behind me, you know, people were giving him the thumbs up. You know, I was 33. <laughs> he got the older And woman. he'd go, yo, that's my mom. You know? <laughs> but um, I, I was just hungry for, for education. I just didn't look back. That one of the challenges that I found, though, was that I had a lot of friends. And when you're poor and you've got kids, your insurance policy consists of other families. Mm. You're there for their kids. They're there for your mm-hmm. kids and so forth. And I didn't have time for my friends. This was really hard. Mm-hmm. I had only time for my family and school. Mm-hmm. And that was it. Yeah. So I decided that I was going to invest in my ability to make a better difference, yeah, a more profound difference. 
And that's what I did. I just focused. I think that's so powerful because I think so many women are fighting to have it all. And I think you can have it all, but you can't have it all at the same time. It's not possible. Yeah. You have to make really hard choices sometimes. And for instance, it was a big house. And my husband wanted to get some dogs. And, oh, well, it would be great for exercise. And, no, he never walked those dogs, <laughs> you know. Um, but they would shed. And we did, couldn't afford anybody to help clean yeah. the house. And if I had obsessed about the clean house, yes. I would not have been able to get good grades in school. Yeah. Because, I mean, I just had to pick. It was clean enough so it wasn't, yeah. you, you know, <laughs> yeah. you didn't get sick. Yeah. <laughs> but dog hair would accumulate along the hallway like small rodents. Yeah. And the only reason it ever got cleaned was we would have a party every <laughs> every two or three months. And then it would take the whole darn day yeah, to because get it it, nobody was doing anything yeah. otherwise. And that tore at me because I don't like to live yeah. in a place that's like that. But at the same time, I had to put on these blinkers and said, I'm doing this. Yep. I'm focusing. And I would get my stuff done. And interestingly, uh, you know, I was, uh, when I got into grad school, you know, I would, I would be in a study group with people my kids' age. And if I made, and they were going off on weekends to do things with friends. And I never had that opportunity because I was somebody's mom from the yeah. age of 17. And it was, it, it, it sort of weirded me out. And I, I would make some sort of a remark and heads would whip around and I'm in a study group with someone old enough to be my mom, yeah. you know, but, um, if there was a, a, a paper that was due in six weeks, I turned it, in, turned it in two weeks and people would say, why are you doing that? You, you know, you're making everybody else look bad. And I say, you don't, you have no idea. I don't know what my life is going to be like. I don't know if when I might have to be spending the night in a lukewarm bath with a, holding a kid getting a fever down. Yeah. So if I have something, if I'm given something to do, I do it right now. Yeah. I do it right now in the time that I have. That is so great. And the other thing that came up was um, I started experiencing post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm-hmm. So... The thing about post-traumatic stress disorder is you experience it post the traumatic stress. You experience it when things are getting better. Yeah. So I'm, I'm going back to school, and I would experience crying jags. Mm. Anytime I would be reminded of the threats to my kids and myself from the time we were living in really abject poverty. I mean, during the time that I moved into the Childbirth Education Center and was living in, in our offices, we put out traps every night for the mice. We were sleeping on the floor, and they were full every morning. Mm-hmm. I didn't like to empty them, but, and my nine-year-old didn't mind putting a plastic bag on his hands and emptying them, but he didn't want to set them because he was afraid they would get his fingers, and I didn't mind setting them, so we had a... We had a, a system. A system between the two of us, yeah. But... There was a time that I, I went up to the market and and I made friends with the 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 produce manager. You know, the guy is is sitting there taking the you know, fruits or vegetables and putting them into a box and putting the fresh ones out. I stand there and I say, What are you gonna do with those? And he says, They go in the dumpster. I take a beat and I say, When? And he looks at me and he goes, Four o'clock today. I said, I'll be there. 
And, you know, I fed my family the food that I got from the produce guy that would have gone into the dumpster. It never did. The stuff I brought home never went into the dumpster, but it was slated for the dumpster. I went to sign up for, um, for welfare. I needed, I needed Medi-Cal, and I couldn't do it. I waited about three and a half hours in a, in a dirty, tawdry room with people behind windows that spoke to you disrespectfully. Mm-hmm. And I left knowing that if I had signed up for welfare, it would have increased the level of stress in my life mm. rather than decrease it. Um, at the same time, what do you do when you have your three-and-a-half-year-old has a 104-degree fever and you give all the money you have to the doctor for that gooey pink medicine mm-hmm. that brings down the fever? And that's all you had for food for the week. So I started experiencing crying jags at weird times. And obviously my life was better, but I was in school. So woohoo! let me dig into this. Yeah. I did a paper on it. Mm. I researched post-traumatic stress disorder. And I discovered something amazing. Post-traumatic stress disorder was um, identified as a syndrome when men began displaying apparently inappropriate emotionality post-Vietnam. Wow. Women, on the other hand, tend to be defined as inappropriately emotional beings. (laughs) So if a woman is having a crying jag, she's just being a woman. If a man is having a crying jag, he's got PTSD. Yeah. What's the deal? I, I, I looked at the definitions, and a woman, a single female head of household living in poverty with her kids at risk from dozens of things in some crappy part of town, mm-hmm. it exactly meets the test mm-hmm. for traumatic stress. Yes. When her circumstances get better, she starts to fall apart. Mm-hmm. If I had had any tendency to drugs or alcohol, clearly mm-hmm. it would have been easy to sort of bury it. To meet that, absolutely. But... I was in school, so I used it. Yeah. And I wrote papers, and I did a paper on uh, post-traumatic stress disorder and the poor single female head of household. Mm. So people make a big deal about PTSD with vets. I'm sorry. Any woman mm-hmm. who has been a single head of household and has lived in poverty with kids mm-hmm. has experienced something that will put her into PTSD. Well, I would say, too... Um encouraging women to look into what the side effects are because I also had it for years and didn't know that that's what was causing it and there are so many symptoms um so it it, it's worth researching it's worth talking to your doctor it's worth um looking into if you are having um for me it was aversion to loud noises it was anxiety attacks it was really bad insomnia things that I didn't understand were related to a traumatic thing that had happened in my childhood. And once I was able, like I finally just looked, I Googled all of these symptoms together and it was like, do you have, did anything horrible happen? I was like, well, yes, it did. (laughs) Um, so, so yeah, so I would really encourage women who are listening to this, if you are struggling or trying to work through something to, to ask yourself if maybe that's a possibility. Well, well, so many women have experienced sexual harassment assault, and rape. Mm. Most of my female relatives 
um, and I hmm. are rape victims. But one of the interesting things in my life was uh, how difficult it was for me to talk about for so long until I realized, until I created this nonprofit and I realized that people need to know that we move on, mm -hmm. that so many people have experienced the same thing and we cannot, 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 cannot give our good spirits and our lives to those abusers. Yeah. We have to claim them and own them and, and lead brilliant, fine lives, make our lives matter. And, you know, everybody's different. For me, it really mattered to, to live a consequential life, mm. to live a life that made a difference. And along the way, people helped me, and I needed to, be, to create systems that would help other people who'd experienced what I'd experienced. The, the cathartic thing for me, having you know, been a battered teenage mom, having uh, been homeless, living in poverty, and so forth with kids, then going back to school and, and, and getting degrees in public health, I, I was able to look at and, and understand this, the systems that made that possible and then begin to understand that we need to create systems that makes it easier for people to live happy, healthy lives. Mm -hmm. So I earned a degree in, in a department called community health science, the, the science of, of making a healthier community. Mm -hmm. And when I went to defend my dissertation, which I did, uh, uh, my dissertation topic had to do with pregnancy and birth education, which I had done for um, many years, I looked at the, around the room at all these guys in their suits. My advisor was a woman, and she was in the meeting uh, via speakerphone because she had taken a position as um, dean of a school of public health at the University of Illinois, Chicago. But I'm looking at these guys, and I couldn't even speak. I had to make a little speech first, and I had to put them on notice. And I said, look, I'm here on behalf of the half million teenagers who give birth every year in this country for whom higher education is almost a complete impossibility. I'm here to make a difference for them because I wanted to let them know that, that I'd, I'd walked maybe a little farther than some other people. And certainly there are to get into that room defending a, a, a dissertation. Yes. Um, and certainly... Other people walk farther than I did. Mm. It's kind of a, a trek going from battered teenage mom, the darkest place you, you probably ever be, to um, earning a doctorate at UCLA in public health. Do you think that there is an answer to that? Do you think that there is a way to make a way, to make an organization, or are there organizations right now that are really working with those moms? How do you fight your way out of having a baby young or having multiple babies young and then what do you do next and let me give a, some context so we are um we've done foster care here in la county um four different little girls have come to our house we are in the process of um that's why i keep looking at my phone is we have been matched with a birth mom who is due so i keep checking to make sure she's not texting me but in all of these situations i have looked at women who started um 
having babies in their teenage years, were repeating a cycle, their moms had had them in high school, they're doing the same thing. And in those instances, these are women who are having eight and nine and 10 children. Um, the mom that we've been matched with, um, a similar situation. And I look, I, I built a company based on creating content for women, encouraging women, and um, this feels like such a crisis that I've watched for the past few years, and I don't know the answer. I don't know that you know the answer. Well, You're not the I, I savior, can, but I would just love I can give you some data. Yeah, I would love perspective. I can give you some data, because as you can imagine, these issues are close to my heart. So most, uh, about 80% of people who live in poverty are women with school-aged children. Wow. And they live in poverty for eight to 10 years during the period of time that their kids are school age. So for sure, they're going to be experiencing really difficult circumstances. And for sure, when their circumstances improve, they're going to be experiencing um, uh, post-traumatic stress um, disorder signs and symptoms. Just deal with it. It's just PTSD. Yeah. And, you know, uh, if you have a crying jag, just know that it, it gets better. Mm. It's just like the 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 it get, it gets better uh, things that are yes. that are are, are gay friends. Yes. Uh, Post traumatic stress uh, sufferers, it gets better. Okay. Um, the next thing is um, teenage pregnancy. Research was done in Los Angeles that showed that girls who were sexually abused before the age of eighteen tend to initiate sexual activity mm. about a year and a half earlier than non-abused peers. So there's a direct correlation wow. between being sexually assaulted when you're young and early sexuality. And the earlier you become sexually active, the less chance you are to contracept. Mm. So girls that are sexually abused before the age of 18 are more likely to bear a child to become pregnant when they're a teenager. You know, you hear political remarks, these girls, why are these girls getting themselves pregnant? Well, you know, no girl ever got themselves pregnant. The fathers of children born to teenagers tend to be not teenagers. Mm. The majority of them are older. Wow. In fact, the, the, uh, the father of my first uh, two children was in his 40s. Wow. And I was 16. The 16-year-old cognitively doesn't understand that that is not a level playing field. Yeah. But that's just manipulation. So any older guy that preys upon a teenage girl is a manipulator, yeah. is an abuser. That's just a fact. It, it, if that guy cared about that girl's future... They wouldn't be having sex, or if they were, he would make sure that she was contracepting. Yeah. But if those things aren't in place, that person only cares about himself. Hmm. And I'm sorry, he's just helping himself and uh, doesn't care about you. And if he acts jealous, it's because he can't be trusted. Yeah. Uh, people, people accuse other people of what they are doing. Hmm. That's a little bit of the behavior science that I've learned. So, you hear about women who've had eight kids, but if they've had two or three of them before they get out of their teens, who was taking care of that girl? Oh, here's another thing that the data shows. If there's a dad in the household, the chances that, that a girl 
will become sexually active, uh, that will that will become pregnant before the age of 18, plummet. Mm, interesting. So um, dads that take off, and uh, I mean, the fact of it is that more than 90% of single parents are women. Yeah. It's not, there are single dads. Yeah. But they are the exception. The non-custodial parent tends to be guys. And every time I find an onboard dad, a dad that's really being into being a dad, I ask that man, could you imagine your kids' lives without you? Mm. And he goes, no, I can't. There's a a role there Mm. that so many men have given short shrift to. So those are some of the issues that surround um, early childbearing. Mm. But what can you do about early childbearing? Well, now I'm going to segue back to the reason that you got in touch with me. I'm going to segue back to Harmony Project. Mm. It's called Beyond Family Planning. The most robust finding in the 1990s uh, in the family planning literature is that educational opportunities for girls equate to older age at first birth and fewer children over the, off, uh, over the lifespan. Mm. Educational opportunities for girls. It doesn't matter what, but mm. opportunities for girls. Let's look at Harmony Project. I launched Harmony Project to provide kids growing up in, in low-income families the opportunity to learn to make music, to express themselves with dignity and grace and power through music because music is something that we can use to elevate our own spirits. I can put on music or if I start to sing, my spirits go up. Uh, As a little kid, I I, I lived in a dysfunctional family. There were times that I felt so angry. Um, I felt like breaking things, but Everybody else would, I was the youngest, the, everyone else would leave the house and I would force myself to go put on some music. And I would sit there and I wouldn't want to, but I knew that it would work and it never didn't work. Mm. Within 10 or 15 minutes, I'd be dancing all over the furniture and I'd be just fine. Yeah. So, you know, music, we go to music when we need it to elevate our spirits. We go to music when we need it to express our spirits because we're, we're feeling so great. Music is there for us in, in so many different ways, and the capacity to make music, not to get it out of a box, but to make it yourself, to make it your own, it's, it's, it's huge. So what we exactly do within Harmony Project is we go into low-income neighborhoods, and we connect kids with professional musicians whom we train as mentors. Mm. Five to 12 hours a week, year-round, tuition-free, including the instruments, for their entire childhood. Wow. We teach them to make music, and we build bands and orchestras with them in their own neighborhoods after school hours. And as the students advance, we train them to help mentor their less advanced peers. That, that has been an out-of-the-park home run. Because if you give kids responsibility and respect, and the responsibility for teaching and helping others to learn to make music, you can't make them go home. Yeah. The average length of time in program of our class of 2016 was seven years, average. Mm. Our kids learned to make music. Super Bowl 2016, 40 Harmony Project string players from South LA were performing on stage with Chris Martin, Bruno Mars, and Beyonce. That's 
awesome. in front of an audience of about 120 million people yeah. worldwide. Um, and they started with us when they were six, seven, or eight. It's tuition-free. It's the most beautiful thing ever. Harmony-project.org in Los Angeles or harmonyprojectofamerica.org for um, contacting, um, finding out about programs uh, in other parts of the country. But um, when it comes to teen pregnancy, what, the topic we were discussing, given the teen birth rates in the neighborhoods where we intentionally cite Harmony Project programs, we would anticipate one teen birth for every 20 to 40 girls in our program between the ages of 12 and 18 wow. per year. We have had two births in 15 and a half years, and we wow. haven't had any in the last eight. Wow. So we can never say how many births we've specifically, teen births we've specifically prevented, but it's not enough for our, for our, our students are learning to make music. Yeah. They, they learn to play movie scores. Yeah. I mean, jazz, um, popular music, classical music, mariachi music, folk music, all genres. For the girls in Harmony Project, it's not enough for, for a guy to be cute and horny. <laughs> She's got to, she's going to ask him, well, what are you doing? Uh, what's your future going to be like? Yeah. What can you do? I could play th this instrument, I, you know. And they start gigging in middle school and high school and making, uh, you know, a little extra money that way. But it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing. But then we started seeing something else within Harmony Project. Since 2008, between 90 and 100% of our high school seniors have graduated and I've gone on to colleges in neighborhoods with a 50% dropout rate where, where prior research shows that those that do graduate tend to graduate with about an eighth grade level of education, at least four grade levels behind their more advantaged peers. So what was going on? This freaked me out because there I was. I, I'm a social scientist now. And I could tell you that social science could not explain what we were seeing. Wow. Not only that, 30 to 50% of our high school grads um, are majoring in science, technology, engineering, and math. We've had two Fulbright scholars, a Gates scholar, and our first doctor graduated in 2015. Oh, my gosh. That's and, awesome. And this, this is, these are from minimally educated parents wow. in, in South L.A., in, in, in L.A.'s highest crime-designated gang zones. So what was going on? So I started bothering a lot of people. Eventually, I find myself speaking with the head of Child Health and Human Development at the National Institutes of Health. What is going on? Can you help us understand? And she goes, oh, you need to know what this woman at Northwestern is doing, and she needs to know what you're doing. So she refers me to uh, Nina Krauss, who directs the Auditory Neuroscience Lab at Northwestern University. So first thing we learned from um, the Krauss Lab at Northwestern is that poverty and adverse life events can negatively impact a child's developing brain in biologically measurable ways that impede the capacity of that child to learn at all. Wow. And there's a constellation of factors, slower cognitive processing, but the most uh, is one of them. But the most salient to me involved the precision with which a child's brain captures sound. Okay, so now when you hear sound, electrical impulses go off in your brain. This lab can capture those electrical impulses with three little scalp electrodes. And they can take that captured electricity and play it back through an amplifier and literally play back the sound your brain captured. Wow. Which is kind of freaky. But this enables them to compare the sounds that your brain captured with the incoming sound wave if they control the incoming sound wave. 
Okay, so they developed this test. They call it a test of neural response consistency, where they'll play the same input hundreds of times, capture a subject's brain response, and then run a simple correlation. So they did this with a whole lot of subjects, and they got two different outcomes. For kids whose moms had some education after high school, the correlation was one or approaching one. So it was, this means it was a very precise fit. Good fidelity brain hardware. These kids' brains are capturing incoming sound the way the incoming sound is coming in. Mm -hmm. But for kids whose moms did not finish high school or who just finished high school, the brain responses were scrambled. Wow. But that's not the end of the story. Each time the same sound came in, the subject's brain scrambled it differently. And when they ran a correlation, the correlation was approaching zero. Wow. Those kids are not likely to ever sound out a word. Which sound? Every time they hear the same sounds, their brain captures something different. This was only published on the 30th of October in 2013. Wow. So this information has not found its way through, percolated through educators. And all over the country, hardworking educators are beating their heads against a wall trying to remediate downstream yes. from a neurologic problem yes. that they haven't accurately identified. Wow. And another class, another English class or another math class is not going to fix it. Wow. But get this, we then partnered with that same lab on longitudinal randomized controlled research with our little kids in Harmony Project. And they've now published 10 articles in conservative peer-reviewed journals documenting significant improvement in cognitive function of Harmony Project participants relative to the controls, including significantly improved precision with which those kids' brains are capturing sound. Significantly improved um, hearing in noise which is a great proxy for focus. Mm. Our students don't say, oh, I can hear better in a noisy environment. They say, I can focus better now. I don't know why, but it really helps in school. We actually had a nine-year-old tell us that. Mm. And the reason improved focus is important is that we're living in a country that's spending $7 billion a year on drugs to help kids focus and learn. At the same time, we're teaching those kids that they have to be on a pharmaceutical to function, and that's yeah. kind of a slippery slope. Yeah. So when you learn music intensively over time, it naturally improves your ability to focus because it changes your brain. Now, these findings did not begin to reach statistical significance, which means that there's a better odds than chance, okay, until two years at a minimum of five hours a week. So it doesn't happen fast, Yeah. but it's kind of cool that it doesn't happen fast because things that don't happen fast last. Yeah. It means that you've made lasting changes to that brain and you haven't made them. That child has made those changes. And that child has made those changes because of the child's own efforts. It's a bootstrap operation. Another significant finding of our research was reading at grade level by third grade. And the kids who were music engaged, deeply music engaged five hours a week, um, nailed their third grade reading targets while the waitlisted controls um, reading scores declined over the mm-hmm. same time period. So what does that mean for us with Harmony Project? We're seeing poverty being over for our kids. Our kids are graduating and they're going on to find colleges. Harmony Project students have attended or have graduated from Dartmouth, Tulane, NYU, USC, Princeton, Harvard, 
Incredible. Um, UC Berkeley, UCLA, and dozens more. Um, and as I said, 30 to 50% are entering science, technology, engineering, and math majors. Most of them don't major in music. Many of them minor in music. They all learn to play. So if you want to make a healthier community, if you want to keep kids safe in school and out of trouble, if you want to close that achievement gap, you want to engage kids in intensively in learning how to make music. Mm. It's not listening to music. Music appreciation classes don't cut it. One hour a week might be fine for a middle-class kid, but for kids from low-income families, we're talking about five hours a week minimum mm. for their entire childhood. A lot of schools have, uh, school districts have music programs in high schools. Um, uh, they may have music programs in middle schools. In elementary school, if there's anything, it may be you might find one hour a week. But one hour a week is, is just not enough to move that dial. We have the data now. We, we're closing the achievement gap with our kids consistently. It's push button. You do this, you get that. Yeah. And it's not a matter of, oh, how can you... People ask us, oh, how can you keep your kids engaged through middle school and high school from low-income families? Simple. Enroll them when they're, when they're young. Enroll yeah. them when they're five or six or seven. Engage with them. Treat them like they matter from an early age and stick with them over time. Teach them to play music together. Our students, by the time they get into middle school, they've been playing in an ensemble for four or five or six yeah. years. They can't remember when they couldn't read music. Yeah. And they're, and they're going set left to right. They're decoding. The, the, the skill sets translate. These are focused kids. These are compassionate kids who mentor one another. They spend five to 12 hours a week listening carefully to each other. Hey guys, we'll be back in a hot minute with more of this interview, but now a quick word from a sponsor. Want to listen to an audiobook that'll make you feel better about your crappy job? Party Girl takes listeners on an adventure among Hollywood's most beautiful and most outrageous people, revealing the ugly side of Hollywood's prettiest parties. The entire Girl series is now available on Audible, and it's read and written by me. <laughs> Discover the world of Audible Originals today at audible.com. What I think is so incredible about this too and listening to the journey that you've been on and the research and what you've built is it was all essentially predicated on you seeing something and having what a lot of people would think of as a crazy idea. I'm going to work with people in this neighborhood how could we have kept them from getting into a gang? We would teach them to play the violin. We would teach them music. We would, we would allow them to learn it and be exposed and learn respect for themselves and their classmates. And I think, I'm guessing that you probably ran into people who were like, you, you want to do what? Oh, oh, you wouldn't believe. Um, I, I ran into funders who said, um, why do you think these kids would want to yeah. learn to make music? And we started with just violin, and then we branched out into all the instruments. Yeah. Uh, why? Because I knew about violin, because um, the child in the farmer's market was my five-and-a-half-year-old youngest son. Yeah. And he'd learned to play. He started learning to play the violin at three. His dad was a studio musician. Mm. There was music making in the home, and he asked for a violin when he was three. And his dad said no, and I said, why? He said, I want him to be able to play music. I said, he doesn't have your mom. <laughs> he, I mean, I want him to be able to play sports. I'm sorry. Yeah. I said, he doesn't have your mom. He can do yeah. it all. 
all of the above. Yeah. And so um, one day when he was five, I was going to the farmer's market. He picks up his little violin and he tells me he's going to go play music in the farmer's market because he's seen musicians play there. His dad was horrified. And I, I said, that's what musicians do. They play. Yeah. So um, I brought him to the farmer's market and he played. What, and would you, what would you say to someone listening to this who has a crazy idea? I would say, think about what makes you feel really alive. Mm. Think about what you would feel excited about working on every single day and go do that. You know, we have to, we all have to take care of ourselves, but um, we have to take care of our bodies. We have to eat well. We've got to do, we've got to exercise, but we also have to take care of our good spirits. Yes. If you get into a dark place, take a walk. Taking a walk is better than taking a drive because you don't want to drive when you're angry or upset, Yes. you know, and if you can take a walk to some place where you can see some distance, like down to the ocean or, you know, the top of a hill, do that. You'll always feel better when you finish taking a walk, but take the steps. I'm a hiker and I like to take hikes. And when you're on the top of a peak, uh, I like to look back and see where I've come from. Yes. And when I think about that, I think I didn't do anything fancy. I just kept taking steps. One foot in front of the other. And I just kept remembering where I was going. So chart a path and keep taking steps. And as long as you keep taking steps, you'll get there. The only way you won't get there is if you stop taking steps. And another thing, when you get there, that's not the only place you need to get. Yeah. You You can have other ideas and you can go other places. So don't think that... Well, do I really? It's like marriages. Margaret Mead has this great quote. Some snarky person said to her, what would you have to say about your two failed marriages? And she said, I didn't have failed marriages. I had great marriages. I had successful marriages. When they stopped being successful, I stopped having them. (laughs) (laughs) So awesome. Margaret, thank you so much. I feel like we could probably sit here for honestly hours and just listen to you speak. I, I was as you were talking, I was like, she could start a cult and I would join it. Like basically anything you're saying, I'm like, yes, let's do that well, thing. Let me let me let me just say this one thing: Harmony Project um, skews girls mm. about fifty six percent, but stably all over the country. I think in Kansas City, it's close to sixty percent girls. Mm. We still have forty to forty, you know, four or five percent boys. But girls find success in Harmony Project. There's research that shows that after-school programs tend to be almost entirely designed for boys Mm -hmm. because girls tend to get sucked into child care and food prep duties. Mm -hmm. But boys don't tend to be seen to be useful for anything. So so people create programs for the boys to keep them out of trouble. Problem is... Those after-school programs confer developmental benefits that the girls miss out on yeah. because they were more functional people in the first place. Yeah. I'm sorry. It's just more work being yeah. a woman. So any guys listening to this, <laughs> apologies, but it just is more yeah. work. You know, try walking in our shoes, try bleeding once a month, try, you know, burying children. Mm-hmm. It's just, there's just more work to it. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm, I, I'm really proud that Harmony Project... Uh, enables girls to discover the truth about their own capacity and discover and enables boys and girls from low-income families to discover the truth about 
what they're capable of accomplishing in their lives. And once they discover that they can learn to play challenging music in real time with other people, there's nothing that they're going to learn, uh, nothing that is going to be thrown at them in school that's going to be more difficult than that. There's nothing they can't achieve. And that's really the whole point. Mm. Thank you so much. So appreciate your wisdom. We've actually come full circle because we have students who have tell us they've left their gang affiliations mm. to focus on music in a harmony project. That's incredible. In fact, we had one student last year who told us he'd grown up in a multi-generation gang family. Wow. And that if it wasn't for Harmony Project right now, without question, he would either be dead or in prison for the rest of his life as he has family members and friends who are both. Wow. He said, I would have been with them. Yeah. Instead, that young man is in college. Wow. Something else that I'd like to share with you, municipalities have begun to integrate Harmony Project into their master plan. The city of Long Beach um, has made Harmony Project part of its violence prevention plan through the advocacy of the chief of police. That's incredible. And we now have programs in four elementary schools in the two highest crime neighborhoods in, in Long Beach. And I sat for a year as a member of the Safe Schools Work Group in Long Beach. And our, inaug- our inaugural meeting was sobered by the fact that the day before our first meeting, a ninth grader was stabbed to death in Long Beach in the middle of the afternoon walking home from school. He was not a gang-involved kid, but he was killed by someone who was. Wow. And so the chief of police in the city of Long Beach speaks passionately about Harmony Project as something that can prevent those kinds of things from happening. We've got to get kids when they're young and stick with them as if they matter. The city of Riverside, California, has also integrated Harmony Project into its master plan, and Harmony Project is now delivered through the Parks and Rec Department in the city of Long Beach, and both school districts embrace the program. It's being piloted in three schools, in the Riverside Unified School District and in the, the, in the Alvord School District. The superintendent is working on a, uh, with us to integrate Harmony Project into all 14 elementary schools wow. and, and enable kids to grow up within Harmony Project with every student having access. So this is the kind of thing that we want to take all over the country. Yeah. Oh, love it. Hey guys, if you like this episode, I hope you will consider subscribing to the Deus podcast on iTunes, sharing it with your friends and showing some love on social media for a newbie show like mine. Those reviews are everything. Thanks to our producer, Allison Cohen, our sound engineer, Jack Noble, and our sound editor, Andrew Weller. To stay in touch with all things Deus, you can check out thechicsite.com or follow me on social media. I am Ms. Rachel Hollis on every single platform. Most importantly, I hope you heard something today that inspires you. I'll see you next week.